Hi there, and welcome to my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. I am Catherine, and I'm so glad to welcome you here. Let's discover together interesting facts about fashion and history and fashion history. I am so excited about today's episode, and I hope that you will like it. As today, I decided to talk about maybe the most unconventional fashion designer, the wonderful Elsa Schiaparelli. In this new episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast, together we will try to understand who Elsa Schiaparelli was, the fashion sensation of the 30s, how she ended up in fashion. We will see her universe, what made her different from the other big designers of that time and rival, Coco Chanel. We look at the evolution of the house of Schiaparelli today under the creative direction of Daniel Roseberry. And I will tell you everything about the new exhibition currently happening at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris and dedicated to les mondes surréalistes d'Elsa Schiaparelli. Shall we start? When I started to work on this episode, the first thing I did was to buy the autobiography of Elsa, Shocking, first published in 1954. The way she talked about herself, her life, her family, sometimes using I, sometimes using she or her to talk about herself, and nicknaming herself Scap, enabled me, in a sense, to discover who she was her complex personality, her desire to be independent, to live her life to the fullest, with no compromise. And this gave me another insight about her collections, how she ran her business. And this was very inspiring. When yesterday, before finalizing today's episode, I went to the Musée des Arts Décoratifs exhibition dedicated to her, it was as if I had an encounter with another acquaintance. It made her the visit more intimist, maybe because it was as if I had access to her memory before, and I was really looking forward to that meeting. Who is Elsa Schiaparelli? The young Elsa was born in Rome on September the 30th, 1890. She was the second child of Celestino Schiaparelli and Giuseppe Maria Luisa de Dominicis, and it seems that a very good fairy was here to help her choose this family because, oh my God, what a family. No wonder Elsa developed such a strong personality and creativity. Her father, Celestino, was a scholar who studied the Islamic world, the Middle Ages, Sanskrit, and other medieval manuscripts and ancient languages. He was also the dean of the University of Rome. Her mother was an aristocrat whose roots could be dated back from the all-powerful family of Medici and to Catherine of Medici, who became Queen of France. By the way, I'll talk about her next month, in November. Her uncle, Giovanni Schiaparelli, was a renowned astronomer who had a fascination for the planet Mars. One of her cousins, Ernesto Schiaparelli was an, an Egyptologist who discovered the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and the tomb of Nefertari. He was also the director of the Egyptian Museum in Torino. And her sister, Beatrice, 
was very much attracted to religion, to the point that she even thought about dedicating her entire life to God. As you can see, everything was in place in her family to let her develop her imaginative faculties, psychic fascination and curiosity. The only thing that Elsa didn't have, according to her, was beauty. Her mother never missed an occasion to criticize the young girl and to compare her to a beautiful older sister. As if beauty was enough to succeed in life, right? Well, it left a mark on the impressionable young girl. In her autobiography, she tells about an event when she tried to beautify herself so that her mother would like her more. She decided to grow flowers on her face to transform her face into something more beautiful. Flowers are always beautiful. She asked for some seeds to the gardener and started planting them in her ears, nose, throat, under armpits, and expectantly waited for the result. But she almost died because of that, and the doctor was called to take off the seeds. However, I see in it an almost surrealist gesture, no? Another story testifying her curiosity and her will to experiment was, after having seen a picture of the flying machine by Leonardo da Vinci, Elsa used an umbrella as a parachute and jumped from the window to fly. After having read about the Christ walking on waters, she attempted to do the same experience, except that it was not water, but in fact whitewash. Ouch. Young, she would try everything, maybe to upset her parents, at least to draw their attention to her and to find herself, but also because she couldn't help it. She needed to break free from the conservatism of her family. She needed to express her fantasy life, and the many stays she did in convents didn't really help to tame her. She wanted to escape from a lifestyle she considered as cloistered and unfulfilling. Getting married, having children, and quietly staying in place wasn't really an appealing future for Elsa, and she would escape in any way possible. One attempt to find her true purpose has been writing. Since her birth, she has been bathing in books, ancient civilizations, different religious beliefs. She started to write at the age of 13. She would try herself in music critics. In 1911, Elsa wrote a volume of poems entitled Aretuza. In the Greek mythology, Aretuza was a nymph who has been transformed into a fountain by the goddess Artemis to escape from the assault of the river god Alpheus. Elsa's poems were not really erotic per se, more towards the sensual side, but it was enough to create a scandal in her family. She was a rebel, and she meant to shock. Shocking was even her favorite expression. It comes to no shock then that she would shock the fashion world in the 30s. Arts, philosophy, literature, spirituality... Everything would attract Elsa Schiaparelli, and this would form our future signature style. Eager to flee her controlling family who wanted to marry her, she went to Paris and then London. Due to her huge interest in everything psychic and paranormal, she started to attend lectures on theosophy. 
There she met a lecturer, William de Wendt, also known as Willy Wendt, William de Kerbor, or William Frederick Wendt de Kerbor. What an extraordinary list of names for the same person. She falls in love with him, and even if her family didn't agree, she gets married with him on July the 21st, 1914. However, our month wasn't that clean. Just see the quantity of names he was known under. Charged for practicing fortune-telling, which was illegal in the UK at that time, the young couple had to exit London. And after some time spent in Paris, Cannes, Nice, Monte Carlo, Elsa and Willie embarked for the United States during the spring 1916. One would think that the guy learned this lesson from his London experience and would keep low profile once in the US. One would badly know the guy. Willie would open a Bureau of Psychology in New York, in which Elsa would work as his assistant. But somehow he became under the surveillance of the former FBI, the BOI, the Bureau of Investigation, because of his questionable professional practices, also because he was suspected to encourage anti-British and pro-German feelings during the First World War, and last but not least, because he was suspected to be a Bolshevik sympathizer and a communist revolutionary. A problematic guy, if you ask my opinion. On the top of that, he was also not the faithful type, having many affairs under the nose of Elsa. Nevertheless, Elsa got pregnant and on June the 15th, 1920, her daughter, Maria Luisa Ivan Rada, better known as Gogo, was born. In the meantime, our dear Willie just disappeared. They divorced in March 1924, and it is said that Willie died in Mexico, likely murdered under mysterious circumstances. Karma. Alone in New York with a young child, Elsa suffered from the stereotypes of that time as a single mother. On the top of that, Gogo was diagnosed with polio at 18 months. Hmm, not the best time of her life. But one of the strengths of Elsa was to create a good network, and she wasn't really alone in the Big Apple. She had her good friend, Gabrielle Buffett Picabia, the wife of Francis Picabia, a Dada and surrealist artist, who she met on, the, on board to the United States. Gabrielle introduced her to the creative scene of New York, where she, meet, she met people as Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp. She also discovered the Dada and surrealist movements, hearts, which exactly met her fascination for spiritualism. In 1922, Elsa took the decision to come back to Paris, a decision motivated by the health of her daughter and the easier access to treatments to cure her polio. Even if she knew she could count on the money of her family, she would always try to find ways to earn her life by herself. Back in Paris, she would be involved in different business endeavors. She would be the assistant of Man Ray for his Dada magazine, Société Anonyme. She would have different business associations with her friend Gabrielle Picabia to sell French designers in the US. She would work for an antique dealer and she would meet Paul. Why? 
Now you have a better idea of Elsa's life, of what forged her personality and then fashion style. I guess you start wondering how she entered the fashion world, how she became a fashion designer. Experimenting with textile and fabrics wasn't something really new for Elsa. Back in her childhood, one day in the attic, she would discover a trunk full of old clothes worn by her mother. She would try them on, analyze them, and several years later, she would sew tops she would sell to her comrades at the convent. And on her way to London, while stopping for a few weeks in Paris for a first ball, she would buy a piece of blue crepe de chine fabric and a piece of orange silk with which she would create her own dress. She would just drape the fabrics around her body, fasten them with some pins and hop to the ball. Her dress was a furor to such an extent that during a very rhythm, rhythmic Tango, the pins, one by one, would start to fall down and soon she would be almost naked. Elsa would refer to this experience as her first failure as a seamstress. Without being a design, a fashion designer or even thinking about becoming one, she already had some predispositions and a sure sense of what was beautiful, combined with her imagination and creativity. There will be an encounter that would put Elsa to the road of fashion, the one she had with Paul Poiré, the king of fashion. One day, she accompanied a friend to the shop of Poiré. She was looking at the clothes, perfectly knowing she wouldn't be able to afford one of them, but still trying on some. She was trying a beautiful, colorful, Coat when Poire came to her and said that she should buy it. This coat was fitting her to the perfection as if it has been meant for her. She admitted that she didn't have the means, but Poire had a very generous gesture and just offered her the, that coat. Over the time, Poire would give her more clothes, using her as a live advertisement. Indeed, Elsa went on frequenting the creative scene of Paris, as she did in New York. She was regular to the restaurant Le Boeuf sur le Toit, where all the Parisian just set would gather. Poiré would sense the creative side of Elsa and would encourage her to pursue in fashion as a designer. And later, she would refer to him as a generous mentor and a dear friend. Elsa never studied fashion. She had no technical knowledge about pattern making and construction. She was just following her intuitions and her inspiration. Her techniques was trapping, trapping fabrics around the body and see how it fitted. It was all about effortless elegance, something easy to wear to enable women to fully move, all with a touch of craziness, of course. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been Elsa's chiaparelli. Everything was in the details. The rest was sportswear chic. She started with knitwear, Coco Chanel's domain. She discovered a special knitting stitch created by Armenian refugees in Paris. It was a double-layered stitch, and she fell in love with it, asked them if they could do something tailor-made in terms of motifs, and she ordered for herself a hand-knit sweater with a bow in a trompe-l'oeil effect. 
She wore the sweater to a gathering she had with friends. The friends loved the sweater, wanted the same, and placed orders. Her friends were affluent people, and soon she had an order from the U.S. of around 30 such sweaters with coordinated skirts to realize in 15 days. Schiaparelli took on the challenge, and this is how, in 1927, she launched a knitwear collection featuring sweaters with various trumpler effects, which would open the roads of the fashion world for her. It's difficult to talk about Schiaparelli without talking about Coco Chanel, and before we dive in the surrealist universe in shocking pink of Elsa, Let's talk about the relationship the two enfants terribles of fashion had in the 30s. Schiaparelli and Chanel are often presented as rivals. They are for sure the opposite of the ideal feminine silhouette. One is all about simplicity, the other is all about exuberance. They are also completely different. One comes from a poor French background, having been raised in an orphanage, and the other comes from the Italian aristocracy. However, according to me, they have much more in common than the rumors of feuds between them could make us think. They both have a relationship with religion. They both are strong and independent women. They are both self-made women too. They both want to free women and to keep them clauses adapted to their active way of life. They both promote comfort with their own definition of what comfort is. It's not really clear what kind of feelings Chiaparelli had towards Chanel. She doesn't really mention anything about it in her autobiography. I guess she was quite indifferent. She would meet her as they were frequenting the same places and had common clients. Elsa even invited Coco to a lunch she organized at her place. The resentment was more from Chanel's side, it seems. At the beginning, Chanel didn't really pay attention to Elsa, the Italian. Then, once fame started to develop, Chanel would look upon Elsa's creations with disdain, a bit condescending. For Chanel, Schiaparelli wasn't doing fashion. Her universe was too colorful, too bizarre for her. She wasn't dressing women. She was disguising them. Indeed, Elsa Schiaparelli's universe was at the opposite of Chanel's. Elsa Schiaparelli's universe was all about the wonderful and weird, the surrealism and the mysticism. She would marry with ease the opposites, the contradictions, the precious and the ordinary, heart and everyday life, black and bright colors, provocative and at the same time serious, poesy and angles, surrealism. She would give to each collection a concept, a theme, parachute, stop, look and listen, le cirque, commedia dell'arte, pageant, zodiac, and always referring, taking inspiration from her rich life, her childhood, her family, and hearts. It is really where we see her, how her education, her family environment, her inclinations towards spiritualism is, is translated. I don't really want to just do a chronology of Elsa Schiaparelli's creations. It would be boring and, for me, 
and for you. And moreover, you can find it by yourself. Just look at the Scapari website. I will focus on what I consider being the many important moments of the around 25 years of experience of Schiaparelli and how Elsa was really in the spirit of her time, even ahead of her time, by mixing fashion and heart and by showing that fashion is also heart. The first very important moment is, of course, the launch of her of her knitwear line in 1927 and the creation of Schiaparelli pour le sport. Two years later, she would launch her first perfume, S. Two years later, she would have her first artistic collaboration with Elsa Triole and the aspirin porcelain necklace. In 1932, Schiaparelli would become Schiaparelli pour le sport, pour la ville. Pour le soir. Two years later, Schiaparelli would make the cover of American Times, the first female fashion designer to have this honor. Can you imagine it? In 1935, she would move from Rue de la Paix, where she had the first shop, to Place Vendôme, and the same year would be the release of the perfume Shocking and of a signature color the shocking pink. During the 30s, Chiaparelli would rise and shine, becoming an unmissable player on the fashion scene. She would re-question, she would innovate, she would experiment, she would collaborate. Collaborations with artists were paramount for Elsa and part of her brand's DNA. I already mentioned the aspirin person necklace, there was also a long dress created with Jean Dunant, featured a painted trompe plate in the front, jewelry with Alberto Giacometti, a fur bracelet with Meret Oppenheim. Of course, the collaborations with Salvatore Dali incarnated by the lobster dress, the shoe hat, the powder box in form of a phone dial, the skeleton dress, the tear dress, and so on. And what about the beautiful trompe-l'oeil created by Jean Cocteau and embroidered in the back of a dress with the two profiles joining to kiss? Or maybe to create a vase with flowers inside? Or the vest with the face of a woman on one side, her hairs following the sleeve and her hand creating the pocket? She collaborated with the best professionals too. Jean Schlumberger, Jean Clément, Lina Barretti for her jewelry collections, Jean-Michel Franck for the designs of, her, of the bottles for her perfumes, Peruga and Roger Vivier for her shoes, and Le Sage for her embroidery. She had among a clientele all the VIP of that time. Wallis Simpson, she even created her trousseau when Wallis married the Prince of Wales. Wallis wore the famous lobster dress during her honeymoon in 1937. Marlene Dietrich, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, Lauren Bacall, Vivienne Lee, Juliette Greco, Mae West, all the big names of the 30s in Europe and in the United States. Schiaparelli innovated not only in style but also in materials. She worked on a rhodophane fabrics, a fabric as transparent and fragile as glass, or on a crushed Array of crepe fabrics, which looks like tree bark. 
She played with different types of materials, as a raincoat she created in 1929, made from rubberized wool and silk. She would also play with zips, and for, her function and for their functionality, and for their aesthetics. She would shock with her culottes and eccentric motifs. She would also launch trends with her shouldered suit so in line with the 30s restrictive fashion following the Great Depression and announcing the Second World War and the precursors of the 80s parachutes. Elsa will make sure her designs fit in the life of the modern women. With the Second World War, she launched her cash and carry collection, featuring clothes with, with large zips and big pockets. She thought the pockets to be large enough in order to put the equivalent of a handbag so that women could have their hands free in case they had to run. This collection also featured, for the first time, camouflage prints in haute couture. In 1946, she worked on the concept of a capsule collection thought for traveling women. It was the Constellation Wardrobe, comprising six dresses, one reversible hat, three folding hats, and everything weighted under six, under six kilograms. After the occupation of Paris by the Nazi army, Schiaparelli tried to stay as long as possible and not to close a fashion house. She wanted to still be able to provide jobs for her teams. However, her being Italian and being suspected of either resistance or collaboration, it became too dangerous for her to, to, for her to stay in Paris. Leaving the house to her right hand, she left for the United States in 1941, where she found her daughter, Gogo. She tried to make Schiaparelli live in the States, the demand for her designs being higher and higher, and Paris being cut from the world. In her biography, she explained that it was really difficult to make Schiaparelli designs in the States, the same way as in France. There was always something not really fitting, it was never the right shades of her shocking pink. In parallel, she committed to support the war efforts and even came back to France with a load of vitamins for children. She almost got arrested for smuggling because of that. Schiaparelli came back to France in July 1945 and launched a new collection in September the same year. She also took part in the Théâtre de la Mode, aiming at promoting French fashion know-how after the war. Despite our best efforts and innovations as the tuxedo dress in 1950 featuring an original diagonal, diagonal button line or the oversized jewelry as the giant bee brooch with Salvador Dali in 1952 and the launch of an eyewear line in 1951, her sense of style wasn't in harmony anymore with the spirit of the time. The surrealist fashion was over. The war killed it. In December 1954, understanding that her business wasn't profitable anymore, Elsa took the decision to close her fashion house, keeping just the perfume lines. The same year, she published her autobiography, Shocking Life, thus coming back to one of her first love, writing.
Elsa died on November the 13th, 1973, at the respectable age of 83. Her legacy would be revived several decades later, in 2019, with Daniel Rosberry taking on the artistic direction of the house of Schiaparelli. Himself interested in experimenting, Rosberry managed to translate the original spirit of surreality, strong and independent women, and heart, which made the signature style of Elsa. Each of his collection is an invitation to escape, a travel to the subconscious and real pieces of heart. I always expectantly wait for the new collections, knowing it would be completely different from anything else. I really like his vision of haute couture as a form of heart, with its many hidden symbols and meanings, and I personally think that he is quite successful in keeping true to the brand's DNA while anchoring his designs into the current discussion. And I was very emotional being able to see in real life some of the most iconic looks he created for the house of Schiaparelli. Emotions. An, an encounter with a dear old friend. Being lost in, in surrealism and losing touch with the reality. I had so many feelings during my visit to the Musée des Arts Décoratifs exhibition. Shocking. Lemon Surrealiste d'Elsa Schiaparelli. The strongest feeling I maybe had during this visit was being moved. It was moving to see in real life these iconic pieces Elsa created in the 30s. It was moving to see in real life the black gloves with gold nails looking like the claws of a cat. It was moving to see the gloves with the ruddy red manicure on them. It was moving to see the knitted sweaters which launched her on the fashion scene. It was moving to see the so famous lobster dress from Salvatore Dali and the dresses with Jean Cocteau's poetic trompe-l'oeil. These art dresses are regularly shown to my students during our fashion history classes. However, seeing them in real life and not in picture was incredible. I walked throughout this exhibition with big eyes as a child, as a child marveling. She maybe didn't know the technical aspects of creating clothes. However, as I said earlier, she had the sense of the details and of what is beautiful. Her lines were simple, comfortable, very modern. The embellishments, the embroidery was everything. A simple vest with big buttons, a little black dress with a trapping effect at the breast level and embroideries at the shoulders. A small touch of fantasy was enough to transform an ordinary clothing into a piece of heart. I mar marveled in front of the circus collection, in front of in front of the Zodiac collection. I loved how the exhibition also showcased tributes from other designers. You can see how Azedine Alaya, Jean-Paul Gaultier, John Galliano paid tribute to the creativity of Elsa. The only thing I kind of regret is that it wasn't possible to smell the many perfumes Capri launched. But apart from that, I spent more than an hour in this exhibition and I know it is not enough. I certainly will go again before the end in January 2023.
if you are in Paris and if you have time, go and pay your respect to Elsa Schiaparelli by visiting this exhibition at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. And to make this exhibition even more an experience, I really encourage you to read her autobiography before your visit. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast dedicated to Elsa Schiaparelli, A Life in Shocking Pink. It was a difficult exercise to summarize in 30 minutes or so the life and contribution of such an impacting fashion figure. And I apologize if I missed some facts. The goal of this episode wasn't to be exhaustive, but to understand what made Elsa Schiaparelli so emblematic on the fashion scene of the 30s. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, to connect with me on Instagram and Facebook, to complete the podcast with some visuals. And if you like my podcast, feel free to leave a comment or a review. I would really appreciate it. I am Catherine, and this is my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. See you next time for a new Fashion Story Box. 